2: From WBEZ Chicago, this is
3: Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Tricia Bobita. Nerdette is a show where we talk to people who dare to ask big questions and explore the unknown. Usually we do that in a recording studio, but this week we are
2: going out into the magical beyond and talking to some extremely smart humans who work at Argonne National Laboratory. Uh Uh-oh, I'm really speeding. (laughs) This is a place that Tricia and I have wanted to go to ever since we started this podcast. (laughs)
3: It's happening. Welcome to Argonne. Wow. Argonne is a massive research facility outside of Chicago, run by the U.S. Department of Energy. Look at it.
2: Holy (laughs) s**t.
3: Whoa. Science is in What are the
2: weird shapes on top? Science.
3: It's one of 10 (laughs) national labs in the United States, and it is enormous. It's almost like a college campus. There's almost 100 buildings, and they're all set out among sort of sprawling fields and big trees.
2: Okay, should we go in and check in and then grab all the stuff? Sure. Yeah, and Argonne has a complicated history, which they're pretty transparent about.
3: Ever since we were born out of the University of Chicago's work on the Manhattan Project in the 1940s, we have focused our attention on answering the biggest questions facing humanity.
2: From how to That's Tricia reading a giant inscription about the Manhattan Project Argonne. at the Visitor Center at Argonne.
3: I only knew a little bit about this before we visited, which is that Argonne's history begins with the discovery of nuclear fission and the technology that brought us the atomic bomb. Argonne was officially founded by an act of Congress just after the war in 1946 with the mission of developing peaceful uses for atomic energy.
2: Argonne continues to perform nuclear research, but they do a lot of experiments in a great many other things
3: as well—things like supercomputers and super batteries and super physics.
2: <laughs> Our guide for the day and fellow science nerd is Justin Bro, who picked us up at the visitor center.
0: We're here. We're so excited. I know, right? Yeah, it? let's go. Hello, my name is Justin Bro. I work at Argonne National Laboratory. I am within the Media Relations and External Affairs Department.
3: And today you are our
0: trustee guide? Today I am the trustee liaison for the NerdEd group and their nerdy <laughs> desires. Onward to science. Onward to science. (laughs)
2: Onward to science. There's more than 3,000 people working here at Argonne, and I think it's fair to say they are the nerdiest of the nerds. And we're going to talk to some of those nerds about three big ideas. If you had one of the fastest computers in the world, how do you decide what problems to solve with it?
3: And if you had the technology and the resources to actually maybe solve those problems, how would you do it? And what if you were trying to
2: solve a problem that might not have an answer for centuries?
3: Also, what if there were lasers?
2: (laughs) Do do you want to make that noise?
3: Pew, pew, pew.
0: Here
2: we go. The first person we're meeting with is Catherine Riley. Good
1: morning. Hi. Hi, come on. Good to see you. Good to see
4: you. Right, so I am the director of science for the Argonne Leadership Computing Facility, and I run a group of people whose sole purpose is to sort of make it as effective as possible to
3: solve cool problems. Director of science? I want that title. You are now officially the director of science. At WBEZ. At WBEZ. Thank you very You're much. welcome.
2: So Catherine works on one of the fastest supercomputers in the world. It is named Mira, and it can perform 10 quadrillion operations per second. So, Tricia, guess how long it would take your, like, work computer to do what Mira can do in one day. You mean my really amazing Yeah. Yeah, I had a feeling you were is... gonna sing the praises of your work computer here.
3: I mean the good thing about my work laptop is that it doubles as a weapon because of how heavy it is. Oh yeah,
2: there you go. But yeah,
3: I mean I don't think it's anywhere near as fast as Mira. Like So yeah,
2: what Mira can do in one day, the average personal computer can do in twenty years.
3: Whoa. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. That's a magnitude that I wasn't really expecting. Like, I thought it was a better computer, but that's a way better computer. For
2: sure. And Mira is also, like, literally huge. Mira is actually, like, more than 1,600 square
3: feet. So my apartment would fit inside this computer several times.
2: Maybe you should move into the computer. Can I live in the computer? I think you can live in the computer. (laughs)
3: <laughs> Mira has already made some really important discoveries. Like we now know the molecular cause of Parkinson's disease, which could make it easier to treat. Mira has also helped
2: figure out how to turn windows into solar panels, which is just like so crazy fascinating. And you can ask Mira to solve all kinds of different questions from biology to the origins of the universe to how to design a smart car. So it's a broad range. It sort of covers every every area you could think about pretty much. I think we have little bits here and there. That's funny. I feel like one reason why I became so interested in journalism because it, it was because I felt like it encompassed all the different subjects at once. I feel like you're doing a similar thing. Have you become an expert in something that you would never have expected <laughs> simply due to like yeah. entering data into this thing and trying stuff out with it?
4: Yes. Most of the people with that, that are on the team, they're scientists, right? They come from like biology or chemistry or engineering or something, right? Astrophysics. And,
2: and you actually become an expert in how you use these machines, right? That's its whole extra field. Back before computers, if you wanted to answer a big question, you had to collect data and run simulations, probably like literally with a pen and paper. But today, supercomputers like Mira allow scientists to run thousands of operations and experiments and simulations in a super short amount of time, literally accelerating the pace of discovery.
3: Right, so instead of my computer working all day long or for, for 20, 20 years, years. <laughs> yep, exactly. Mir is like, I got oh, that. Oh yeah, I got you. So the supercomputer can sort of run through scenarios, models at crazy sort of speeds compared to the human mind, right? That's right. sort of part of what it's doing. But it still has a finite amount of bandwidth to think through those problems. So how do you decide, how does Argon decide, how do we decide what questions to ask?
4: We actually have, frankly, an open competition to, to get access, right? To sort of say, hey, what are some awesome problems that people are trying to do right now that are ready to go? And we sit down, there's, you know, a bunch of experts, right? A bunch of scientists sit down and sort of evaluate, oh, these ones look like they might have the biggest impact.
3: Is it a Jedi Council-like room? Because
4: in my head, it always has been. <laughs> oh, that would make it so much more fun. No, <laughs> it, it
3: is a very exciting, like, Hilton conference room, you know, and, <laughs> and a bunch of tired scientists. And what those tired scientists are looking for are problems that have a really big impact on people's daily lives. Catherine says they usually find about 35 questions each year to work on, and the answers can take a lot of different shapes. It's, it really varies. So you might
4: have one question, right, about the cancer screening, right? It's, can we design a better drug for cancer? That answer is going to look like a big, giant database, right? Mm-hmm. Because then you're going to want to be able to ask a question like, well, I'm looking at this kind of cancer with these kind of characteristics. Mm-hmm. What's my best drug? And, you know, and it'll point you to approximately like a point on a table to sort of tell you where to go. Right. But also it's just a lot of data.
3: In a broader sense, what are you most optimistic about in terms of what science could solve in your lifetime?
4: Oh, that's a great. So there's a bunch of answers to that. Yay. I'm going to whittle down a little bit. I, <laughs> I'll stick with the cancer one because I think this is, this is a very personal one for most people. And it's true for a variety of different diseases as well, right? The idea that we can start mining all of this information we have about different drugs and different materials and literally like how we build those drugs, like their their properties, and target that really effectively towards treating disease is something we're very close to. Right. And this is this is something that's, you know, on our computers today. We're advancing that today. And it doesn't necessarily mean that suddenly disease is gone, right? But this idea of these personalized treatments and this very rapid ability to deliver personalized treatment is really exciting.
3: So would that mean that the terminal would become chronic in some form? It
4: it kind of, I think so not a biologist, I would say I think that's gonna probably depend completely on the actual disease, sure. right? But it could be. Right. It could absolutely be that instead of a particular disease being a death sentence that you are able to instead manage that for a much longer period of time. Um, our understanding, as I said, of being able to mine all of this information we have is, is so important. And this is the sort of the other part to, that I think is so amazing, is we have so much data. And being able to use computers more effectively to make sense out of all that data, to actually help us discover, that's, that's a game changer. Because that changes how we ask questions. It's not just a cool answer to a cool question. It's how do we ask them? That's going to change. And so that, that creates whole new opportunities that we're not even thinking of.
0: This was
3: fantastic. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Oh my gosh. How are we doing, timekeeper? Good.
0: Good. We're actually early, so. Perfect.
3: Wow. Whole new opportunities we're not even thinking of yet. God, what do you even think that means? I would like the supercomputer to figure out how to make it so we don't need to sleep anymore. Oh God. It's a waste that of time. Again? that stresses me out so It's a waste much. of time. No, Mira, <laughs> no, get on it. Oh Mira, let me sleep in, please. Alexa, wake up. There are already to too many machines. Can my Alexa talk to Mira? Do they have a direct connection? No! They're all horrible. I'm going to bed. So, Justin, how long have you worked for Argon?
0: I'm going to my fourth year. Then
3: why did you want to work here?
0: I just dig science, man. <laughs> I just dig science.
3: More science in just a minute.
1: Think on your feet for our fast and curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org/events.
3: We were hoping we could add one thing to the itinerary, and that is uh, we would like to see the entrance to the Upside Down. If okay. Possible.
0: No problem. Um, let me check with my boss's boss's boss boss, because, you know, that's, uh... That's yeah, just, like, we
3: can go secret. off the record for that part if
0: we have to. Okay, i I prefer that.
3: <laughs> One reason I'm really excited to be here at Argonne is that this place and this whole day is feeling a lot like a real-life version of Stranger Things.
2: Now, when you say Stranger Things, you mean the Netflix show about the children who are on bikes and happen upon a Department of Energy lab in the Midwest, yes, in the middle of nowhere. Yes,
3: check, check, check. We are doing all of those things, minus bicycles. Uh, We're in your car.
2: A lab that just happens to have a portal to another dimension or vortex
3: or some sort of situation called the Upside Down. Right. So, if we're in the Midwest, out in the middle of nowhere, in my Toyota Corolla, there are wheels, (laughs) and there is a US Department of Energy lab, I wanna know where the upside down is.
2: Okay, but I think we should also say that, like, while the Department of Energy has been very good sports about Stranger Things and the Upside Down, Hawkins, Indiana, where the fake lab is, is in fact a fake place. We are at Argonne, which is
3: a real place. With real scientists who we are here to talk to, (laughs) and I am happy to do so while continuing to keep an eye out for the Upside Down. Okay. Okay.
2: One of those very real scientists that we are talking to today at Argonne is Raj Sonkran. Hi, I'm Tricia. Nice to meet you.
3: Really great to meet you. Hi, I'm Greta. Wonderful.
1: I'm nice Jack. to meet said, you. Come
2: on come on.
3: Uh, Raj is making about 500 robots full of sensors, all these little nodes, and putting them on top of light poles in Chicago.
1: So here we have the computer which can do image processing. And then you have... A, the stormtrooper helmet. Exactly. The stormtrooper helmet which has got all the sensors inside it. It's got a camera That
2: to project space. is called The Array of Things. I'm sorry, did you say Stranger Things? <laughs> no, I said The Array of Things. The nodes. They all come together and act like a fitness tracker for the city. How is the city doing? Is it too hot? How clean
3: is the air? How does traffic move? These are questions that can all be answered with the data collected by the well-intentioned stormtrooper-looking robots. And the answers can help us design more efficient cities.
1: Um, I come from a developing country, India. Right. Uh, In fact, I'm going back to India tomorrow morning uh, and lots of countries are going to have lots of big cities being built in the next decade. Right. India and China, for one, are expected to build a lot of big cities. Right. Cities the size of New York, tens of them in the next two or three decades to be able to sustain the amount of population which is becoming urban. Right, and we have made a lot of mistakes in basically building the cities that we have built until now. Right, we have built them. We made a few mistakes. We kind of sort of understand the implications of them in human health, and then we try to tweak them around. And we say, okay, this seems to work. This doesn't seem to work. But in some sense, the word we need a clear understanding of what works and what doesn't work. I think one thing that this is going to transform for sure is to be able to build more people-friendly cities in the future.
2: Because, I mean, if you think about it right now, cities aren't always people friendly, right? I mean, think about traffic jams and long commutes or factories and people who can't afford to move away from them. These are all the kinds of problems that the Array of Things is trying to solve for cities of
3: the future. And the way they're doing that is by placing sensors all across urban environments to see what gets used, when, how.
1: What Array of Things tries to do is use this core technology called VIL that we developed at Argonne to help us understand cities, but without being in a surveillance state, right? Without basically trying to get into people's way.
2: The reason Raj mentions a surveillance state is because this is a really important and kind of potentially contentious thing about the array of things.
3: Right, because one of the sensors in that stormtrooper-looking robot is a camera. A camera that's taking pictures both of how much rainwater is collecting on the city street, but also you as you walk by, which makes some people rightfully kind of nervous.
2: So yeah, there are some pretty serious privacy concerns, but that's not stopping other cities from wanting to use this tech.
1: Most likely by end of 2018, we should have about 10 cities where we would do a pilot of about 4 to 10 nodes. There are nodes out in uh, Portland, in Denver. We have a bunch of nodes ready for Detroit. There may be some in the California Palo Alto area. Some even in foreign places like you know England, India, and other places, China. It all depends on how many we can get through in the city and collect data and make sense of it. I can't shut up for five minutes, actually. It doesn't work like that. (laughs) Thank you very, very much for coming. And now I have two podcasts that I listen to. Wait, wait, don't tell me.
2: (laughs) Okay, so we've talked to someone who's harnessing the power of a supercomputer to solve some of the world's most pressing problems. And we've talked to someone who's building some really innovative robots to understand how we live. Next, we're going to talk to someone about how a soft, silvery metal changed technology.
3: Lithium-ion batteries. They're rechargeable, and you find them in pretty much everything these days. Your cell phone, your laptop, your Bluetooth thingamabobs. (laughs) Even electric cars like Tesla's use lithium-ion batteries.
5: I think we all seen the changes um, that lithium-ion battery brought to us, right? That this okay. is Argonne staff so scientist Lei Chen. I mean, lithium-ion battery basically made those devices portable. That fundamentally changes the way that we access uh, our information, right? If we're arguing about something, it used to be you had to go back and really try to prove your point. <laughs> Who's and in now, that movie? <laughs> yeah, Now just take out your phone, do the search, and bam, you're wrong, right? <laughs> I and mean, that's the way, uh, and also fundamentally changes the way that we communicate with each other, which for the good and bad, right?
3: What Lei is working on at Argonne is finding the best elements to make the next kind of
5: battery. At a certain point, we had to hit hit this theoretical wall that, you know, lithium-ion doesn't necessarily get us to where we want to go in the future. So that's why we started looking at next generation batteries.
3: Lei says lithium-ion batteries are great, but the problem is they require a bunch of lithium, and that ain't cheap. So there are a bunch of other
2: elements out there, if not lithium, then what?
3: Lay says she's actually working with her old pal Mira, Catherine's supercomputer, to figure out which elements could make the next
5: awesome battery.
2: One promising element is magnesium.
5: Which is cheap and earth abundant. It carries twice as much charge as a lithium battery. Potentially gave you a very high energy density and you can make it cheaply. They're
2: also looking at sulfur and a few other metals.
5: That doesn't sound like it would smell good. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that could be problematic.
2: It could be, but I don't know. Maybe they figure out how to take the stink out I don't out want my blue
3: tube thingamabob to smell like eggs.
2: The thing that I think is really interesting about this, though, is to picture what would happen if we had to, like, put A batteries into our phones every time they ran out of juice. Like, think about how much the lithium-ion battery has helped our tech and then how much that next generation battery could, too. That actually blows my mind.
3: Can I power myself with the next generation of battery so that I don't require sleep? Yes. Good. I am noticing a theme here. I've got things to do. <laughs> Entrance to the upside down?
0: Um, oh, it's, uh, I can't show Oh, okay. <laughs> it wouldn't be on that map anyway because public comes in here. And you mm, know
3: what because it's upside down, for do sure. Keep asking. Yeah. Well, in uh, case. Uh, yeah, I can- Soleil is trying to solve a very tangible problem that could mean a better phone in your pocket or car in your driveway.
2: But the guy we're talking to next is working on a problem that is so theoretical it could either alter our understanding
3: of existence. Or be a total waste of time.
6: Specifically, the problem that I worry about uh, has to do with us existing at all.
2: More debt in a minute.
3: If you were going to put an entrance to the Upside Down somewhere, this is a much safer place to put it. Because I don't think little kids are going to, like, happen upon this via bicycle. We are out in the middle of nowhere. Gotta right, guess what's next? Science? More science! On to science! <laughs> science!
0: On to the pursuit of knowledge. For the sake of knowledge.
2: So up next, a really convoluted problem that totally falls under knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Matt Dietrich is an experimental physicist. What he does is measure the properties of rare isotopes. And his ultimate goal is to better our understanding, humanity's understanding, of fundamental physics.
6: You, you work on stuff like this, and it's really a Hail Mary, because you never, you never know if you're going to find something. And if you do find something, well, will it ever have any kind of practical application? You, uh, you just kind of satisfy yourself with being excited about the questions uh, and about the search, I think.
0: Why
3: do we exist? Why does matter exist at all? If these sound like more existential questions than scientific ones, well, they kind of are. Basically, Matt says there's a problem with something called
2: the standard model.
6: In some sense, the standard model is really just it's just the accumulation of all the things that we've learned about about particle physics.
3: Like a particle physics owner's manual. Sure.
6: All the physics that we ever test works out pretty much exactly the way we think it ought to work out, uh, which is frustrating because (laughs) we know that something is broken.
2: One of the main concepts, one of the fundamental theories that Matt bases his work on is something called time reversal symmetry. And it gets like insanely confusing (laughs) really fast. But the simple version is for everything that happens, there's an equal thing that could also happen. That sounds familiar. Yeah, it's kind of like Newton's third law, right? For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction.
6: Or in kind of the context of fundamental physics, if, it, if a nucleus can absorb an electron, it should also be able to emit an electron with the same yep. energy and, yep. and so forth. Yeah. Uh, basically, everything that we found obeys this rule, which causes a problem because it implies kind of under the hood that in the early universe, the same amount of matter and antimatter should have been produced. But that's a problem because there's no antimatter around. There's only regular matter around.
3: Regular matter is literally everything around you right now and you. That's it. Matter. We're all matter. This is all matter. Whatever you're looking at, that's matter. Right. And it's made up of protons and neutrons
2: and electrons at its, like, most fundamental level, right? So then antimatter is just the opposite of that. It's made up of antiprotons and antineutrons and antielectrons. And most importantly, it doesn't seem to exist in our universe
3: but it does exist in the universe that contains the Starship Enterprise.
5: Bridge to engineering. Negative effect on power reduction. Speed is still increasing. Aye, Mr. Spock. The emergency bypass control of the matter-antimatter integrator is fused. This thing is going to blow up. And there's nothing in the universe that can stop it.
3: Scotty.
2: A lot of really smart Star Trek fans slash serious scientists like Matt say all this antimatter has to be somewhere.
6: What happened? How is it that there was more matter created than antimatter at the dawn of time, essentially?
3: Or... Are we just incapable of seeing, measuring, understanding where the antimatter is?
6: Yeah, it's it's always conceivable that like some distant galaxy is actually an antimatter galaxy or something like that. Bizarro
3: universe where our doppelgangers live? Is that?
6: I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, in a, a faraway galaxy, there is an anti. An There's anti- an antimatter me. Yeah, um, <laughs> but the 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 problem is is that. For example, with that particular theory that actually there is antimatter, it's just far away it's from it.
2: It's just here. all in one place really far away, and that's yeah. why we don't know right, about that's it. That's
6: why we don't see it. The The problem is, is that deep space isn't actually empty. It's full of various matter particles. Uh, and so we would see those matter particles colliding into that distant antimatter universe, and we notice pretty quickly that that was... a a weird galaxy. You're
3: like, "Oh, there it is, it's over there." Yeah, right. Oh,
6: okay, that one has <laughs> that one that one's emitting gamma rays at the proton energy and that's really weird. But we don't see anything like that. And in any event, that would be kind of a weird situation because why in the early universe would all the ma- antimatter go that way and all the regular matter come this way?
2: Yeah. It's a great question. <laughs> yeah,
6: so so for for those reasons, we really suspect that the universe is appears to just be made entirely of matter rather than equal parts matter and antimatter. But nothing, none of the basic processes that we see in the lab back that up. They all say matter and antimatter should behave the same way.
3: This is all an interesting thought experiment, but what does Matt actually do all day at work? Well, he's in a pretty awesome laboratory.
6: It has almost a dozen lasers in it and a big vacuum chamber. Um, what? And, what? And, I, and I have to keep all those things running nicely. Uh, and performing at peak performance uh, in order to get data. What does that mean? You're just spending a lot of time on laser maintenance? Uh, I spend as... I try to develop the lasers to a point where I don't have to maintain them.
3: Ah. Um, They're always going to need a little maintenance. Also, is there an argon band anywhere in the building with the name laser maintenance? Because (laughs) it's a pretty good name (laughs) for an indie band. So Matt is shooting
2: well-maintained lasers at rare radium isotopes and looking for behavior he doesn't expect. If there's any funny business, he calls up his boss.
3: And if he does find what he's looking for, worth stating that the discovery wouldn't totally destroy the standard model. It's more like it would be adding an asterisk to the particle physics owner's manual.
6: We know there has to be an asterisk Uh out there someplace because we exist. (laughs) Uh, And I'm I'm just trying to figure out what that asterisk is.
3: Does that drive you nuts?
6: Uh, I love it. I mean, kind of.
3: To me, the craziest thing about what Matt does for a living is he may never know if anything he's doing is going to lead to a discovery. It might lead nowhere.
6: All of the things I work on are so... It's possible that none of them, none of them happen in my lifetime.
2: Are you okay with that? I guess yes. you must be.
6: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always hard to see if, well, this doesn't have any clear applications. You don't want to go out there and say, like, oh, this has some basic application to submarines or something. Um,
3: this will make your car work better. Yeah, this yeah. will. Yeah, you,
6: you can never really foresee that kind of thing. But, of course, the, the answer is, is that a lot of great science that happens now was originally, like, the people who worked on it had no idea that it would ever be applicable, right? The famous example being general relativity and, and GPS satellites. When uh, Einstein started tinkering around with uh, general relativity, he didn't think that that would ever have any practical application whatsoever. But now it's an essential part of the GPS system. It's, it's hard to even guess on what time frame some of these things could eventually become, become useful.
3: Matt could spend his entire life trying to solve this problem and never find an answer. But that's just what science, for the sake of knowledge, is all about.
6: To me, science, physics in general, is the thing that we have inherited. And eventually we will pass on. It's, it's kind of an integral part of our job. Somebody gave us this, this precious thing, this beautiful thing, and eventually we'll give it to people to follow us.
3: This is what's so cool about argon, right? Matt is doing science for the sake of science, which maybe leads nowhere, but maybe creates something as transformative for all of us as GPS. And just think about the way you're listening to this podcast right now. It's probably on a laptop or a smartphone, and that smartphone is basically the evolution of a supercomputer, like Catherine's. It has a lithium-ion battery in it, which was invented by scientists just like Leigh, and it's got GPS in it, which started with a question as broad and discovery driven as the things Matt's working on right now. So what comes next? We're not sure, but the people at Argonne, they're going to be among the very first to know.
0: All right, Justin. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wonderful, thank wonderful. You, buddy.
2: As you have heard throughout this episode, there are lots of different ways to ask questions about the world and explore
3: discoveries that could change everything. And if you listening right now are inspired and excited to do some discovering of your own, well, Catherine Riley has some advice for you. If you're interested in science, like if you're interested in a specific
4: area of science, right, you study that, right? You study the area that excites you. And then just kinda go and experiment. Because that's one of the other things is this is definitely a field of of experience, right? You need to just experiment and try and do it and see what works and see what fails and you know, just like almost like, like anything, but you just gotta try.
3: The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull.
2: Our executive producer is Brendan Benizak and our interns are Stefania
3: Gomez and Sophie Lalonde. Special thanks to everyone at Argon, even though they did not let me go visit the upside down. How disappointed are you by that? Well, I don't have the security clearances, so I understand, but I'm (laughs) quite disappointed. (laughs) We would like
2: to give a very special five-star thanks to A Picture Is Worth for the very nice review on Apple Podcasts.
3: A Picture Is Worth 1,000 words. Did they write 1,000 words about how much they like us? That would be a bit overwhelming. Also, the character count probably doesn't allow for such things.
2: A Picture Is Worth 5 stars on Apple Podcasts.
3: All right. Thank you for however many <laughs> words you wrote.
2: <laughs> you can find Nerdat Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Do subscribe.
3: It is very helpful for us. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Nerd at Podcast. And our theme music is by Paddington Bear. Do some science. Do some
2: science.
3: Laser maintenance is a good band name. And I would just like to say I could have been trusted with the lasers. But other people did not agree. <laughs> and so... I didn't get to play with any lasers. Thank God. Which is probably for the best. <laughs> let's, let's be real here. All right, fine.
0: Oh, man. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.